Please have a seat if you would. Again, good morning and uh, welcome on this beautiful day. Uh, welcome to the Leewood campus and uh, welcome to Christ's community. Whether you've been here many times or it's the first Sunday and, uh, or whatever, I hope you sense the Lord's presence here and that we are so delighted you're here. Well, have you ever looked back at your life uh, and, wow, something you thought uh, was really smart or cool to do at one time, now you look back at your life with a hideous sense of <laughs> incredulity going, what on earth was I thinking? You ever been there? Well, I grew up in the 70s, so don't do all the math here, late 70s as a kid. And, uh, you know, I thought then it was really a good idea to uh, listen to Joan Baez and Bob Dylan. I could list them all. Wear bell-bottom jeans, yes, uh, peace buttons, and yes, leisure suits. <laughs> now, my kids who are grown up now are simply horrified when they look back at Dad's attire. Um, and they have this great fear that comes over them that their dad looked like, well, Uncle Rico and Napoleon Dynamite walking on this planet. <laughs> it's enough to ruin a child's life. I'm glad we didn't have Facebook then. I mean, I love, you know, that, but in the cloud. I mean, just think about it. When you're younger here today, someday your kids or people that come after you look at you, that's what you wore? You know, now at least I could destroy my pictures. Um, <laughs> But, you know, when it comes to our wardrobe and music we listened to and the ideas we thought were pretty cool at that time, you know, we might look back and kind of chuckle, but there are some ideas that we believe were right or true, but now we realize how blindingly false and foolish and woefully inept they are. I was reminded, I think, in a fresh way this week when Liz and I saw the movie Selma. Selma's an important movie. It uh, depicts this courageous struggle of Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement. And when you watch it again, you are confronted with the hideous reality of the blinding eyes of systemic racism, both personally and systemically. And I found myself pondering this question as I watched this movie. How could we as a nation, educated, religious, have been so blind, so wrong for so long? How could we be so slow in wising up? In the inconvenient truth, we must all confront, I think, on a societal level and a personal level is the reality that human wisdom can be so blind. The best human ideas can be so foolish. And through the lens of history, we realize so deadly wrong. So how do we wise up? How do we wise up? In Paul's letter to the Corinthians that we are looking at this year, the Apostle Paul addresses this question, and he says, if we want to wise up, we must look up. If you brought a Bible with you, if you've been following along, I'd like you to turn there, electronic paper, and follow along as we look at the text this morning. Now, as we launch this series through the book of 1 Corinthians, let's remember the literary context. Corinth was a church made up of both Jews and Gentiles, or Jews and Greeks, they lived in a very promiscuous, very 
hedonistic, but also a very heady culture in the Greco-Roman world. If you've been at Corinth, as I have been, you can almost see Athens from it. Athens was the center of wisdom of the world. The Greco-Roman world was a place of great wisdom. It was a heady place with heady stuff they thought about. And yet, right off the literary starting blocks of this inspired letter we call 1 Corinthians, Paul initially establishes a contrarian position of the common thinking of the day. And he says, basically, the wisest human wisdom is really stupid. (laughs) It's foolish. It's woefully inept. It's even perilously blinding. Now, let's remember that the Apostle Paul, who was Rabbi Saul of Tarsus, was a brilliant rabbi. He was trained under Gamaliel. He was trained in the best Greek and Roman thought and Hebrew thought. He was multilingual. You get the idea. He was a bright chap. But it's interesting to me that what he once thought was such a foolish idea, so utterly preposterous, a crucified Messiah, yet now... In this letter to the Corinthians, Paul now sees the crucified Messiah and his bloodied cross as the path to true spiritual wisdom. In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul anchors this whole letter on this verse. So we're going to keep remembering it as we go through this series. Verse 18, chapter 1, for the word of the cross is folly. That means foolishness, stupidity, incredulity, rubbish might be another word in the ancient Greek language. It's like... (laughs) right? That's the idea. To those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Paul is saying early on in this letter, and we want to tuck this in our heart and mind as we travel through this book, if we really want to wise up, we have to look up. We need spiritual wisdom that comes from understanding the cross of Christ, and it is revealed through the power and wisdom of the Holy Spirit. So with this idea in mind, and we want to tuck it in our minds and hearts throughout this whole letter, We find in chapter 2, Paul brilliantly in a literary artistry arranges three essential truths about spiritual wisdom, and he arranges them on the literary scaffolding of contrast. Three essential truths embedded in contrast of what true spiritual wisdom is. And the text this morning and the message will follow that structure of the Apostle Paul. These three essential truths, if you're taking notes or placing them in your mind, is this. First, spiritual wisdom, Paul will say is eternal, not temporal. It's eternal, not temporal. Secondly, he will say that spiritual wisdom is revealed, it is not attained. It's revealed, not attained. And third, he builds, spiritual wisdom is distinct, but it is not arrogant. So let's dive in. First truth. Spiritual wisdom, Paul says, is eternal, not temporal. Now, I want you to notice, and I hope you have your text open or your e-text or whatever it is, You will notice in verses 6 through 9, right away, Paul introduces the contrasting axioms or wisdoms that he contrasts. The wisdom of the age, which means the best thinking of the contemporary day, okay, in his generation. Contrasting that with the timeless wisdom of God. And you'll notice how Paul enters this timeless construct in verse 7. Let me just read it, watch it carefully, and listen. But, Paul says, we... We impart, and again, you will see this word impart arranged three times in a literary artistry through these holy verses. Hebrew thinking is very much tied to three. So you hear this, we speak, we speak, in some translations, we impart, we impart, we impart. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, 
which God decreed before the ages for our glory. This is stunning when you think about it. It was stunning to the first century reader. It's stunning to us. Paul is saying that the secret wisdom is not some secret handshake or wearing some secret underwear in a temple. Okay? Just, just so you know. What is this idea of secret? What does he mean by this, this mysterion? He describes it primarily as found in the cross of Christ. He has laid that already out in chapter 1. It, it, it is understood through the person and work of the cross. Now, Paul will do something as a good rabbi, and he will connect us with Old Testament text, Old Testament wisdom, and what he's going to talk about, spirit wisdom here. So he goes back to the Old Testament. He makes a quote, probably Isaiah 64. We're not exactly sure where this text comes from. But he anchors Old Testament wisdom, and he affirms it. But he makes a distinction between Old Testament wisdom, like we have the book of Proverbs, right, that helps humans flourish. But now you'll notice he's going to introduce a new category of wisdom that comes right from the heart of God. It's centered in Trinitarian intimacy. It's revealed by the Holy Spirit. And it's not for God's glory. It's for our glory. Do you see that? Very unusual in Paul's writing. It's for our glory. So Paul is affirming this new kind of wisdom that comes to the very heart of God, the Trinitarian mystery of God. Hold that in your hats. Hold that in your minds for just a moment. Now, when we enter into our own culture today, I think there's a gripping irony that I hear from many social critics about our information age. There are many wonderful things about that, right? It's amazing what I can do with my phone or Google and the information of the world is at my disposal. That's pretty cool, actually. But many people are saying that our information age has with it great paradox and irony, that we've never had greater information access and we've never had less wisdom access. So Paul's first century word is timeless to our cultural milieu today. Never in human history have we had the grasp or access of information and never perhaps have we had less wisdom. That's what he is saying in the first century. A century that thought it had great wisdom. Now, Dallas Willard, who is uh, the late Dallas Willard, who is a friend of Christ's community and former professor at uh, philosophy at USC, used to tell us often this in conversations. Uh, Dallas, one of his favorite phrases was this, such a part of his thinking. He said, we live by our ideas. Our ideas either run our life or they ruin them. They either run our life or they ruin them. So let me step back for a moment as Paul asks a thoughtful readership in the first century, what ideas are animating your mind, your priorities, your moral constructs, how you live your life, your work, your family, if you're married? What are the ideas that shape your priorities and practices of life, the values of which you live by? This is part of the question Paul is weaving through this letter. And are the ideas running your life, whatever they are, are they running your life or are they ruining it? Where are you looking for wisdom that makes possible a flourishing life? Paul wants us to wrestle with this question in this book. Where do you and I look for the wisdom we need to live life? Because where we look for wisdom really matters. And let me just sort of say that there is a danger, I think, that we face in our own present time what many thoughtful philosophers and sociologists call the seduction of relevance the seduction of relevance. Many of us are so enamored with the present moment. We are so ignorant of the historical depth and conversation. 
We are so caught up in the constant shifting cultural uh, world that's bombarding us, the latest greatest, the political correctness that is suffocating us. We miss what is most important. And rather than grounding our lives in timeless truth, we often chase the latest, quote, truths. Now, this is true of every generation. Every generation has its own myopia and hubris and arrogance. But I think many thoughtful people have said, perhaps today it is more amplified in our times. Perhaps it might be because, I mean, we want to be accepted by our friends at school or our colleagues at work. Maybe it's, you know, a new and novel investment strategy. I read a lot about that these days in a very low interest rate environment, right? Everybody trying to chase high returns, and there's some guru coming along like, here's the latest investment strategy. You go, whoa, let me think about that. Or maybe your longing is to make a difference in the world. That's a good thing. A cause. But often, causes are hijacked by bandwagon movements. Now, let me say this very clearly. The voice of the crowd often crowds out wisdom. That's the nature of the crowd. And Paul will confront this. And one of the greatest perils I see in individual Christians' lives, Christian churches, and Christian organizations that lead to doctrinal drift and mission drift and unfaithfulness to Christ is an allurement to be on the cutting edge. In reality, being on the cutting edge doesn't have to, but it often leads to going off the edge. Let me give you an example. I read Fast Company. It's one of the book, uh, magazines I read because I think innovation and these things are new. I'm not saying to be anti-innovation or stuck in the past, right, on methods and technology. But if there's a hero of the last few years, it's Amazon's CEO, Jeff Bezos, right? It's like the Steve Jobs of the day. Fast Company took him on this, this last week because Amazon hasn't made a profit hardly at all. Innovative, bold, and investors are going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Bezos is off doing all kinds of things, and they're saying, you have gone off the edge. Amazon is off the edge of profitability, chasing the latest drone or whatever, okay? It's not that innovation's wrong or being stuck again in the past or longing for relevance at some level is okay, but here's an example in the business world where their investors are saying, you're going off the edge. You're so caught up in the present, so caught on cutting edge, so caught up in innovation, the newest, latest idea, you're missing it of the fundamentals. See, every generation has its own hubris, and there's a danger if your life is centered in the present moment. One of my seminary professors, who was very wise, used to say to us, and he looked down with his spec spectacles and his bifocals or trifocals, now that's, right, that's a real interesting euphemism, progressive lenses, anyway, that's another story. He'd look down like this, and he'd say, don't forget that that which is most timely is timeless. And that's what Paul is saying. It's like the changing weather, current ideas come and go, the latest business education, the latest religious guru come and goes. They do. But timeless wisdom remains. This is what he's saying. Oz Guinness, who's a friend of Christ's community, is a very thoughtful social critic. I encourage you to read everything he writes because he's so insightful, has such a grasp of history so he can speak into the moment. He has a wonderful book he came out with four or five years ago called Prophetic Untimeliness. And he calls the American church, 
broadly to the dangerous idol of relevance. And this is what he says, and I'm going to read one of his quotes. I'm going to go slow because it's so brilliant and so important. This is a prophetic utterance with a small p in our day. By our uncritical pursuit of relevance, notice uncritical pursuit of relevance, we have actually courted irrelevance. By our breathless chase after relevance, without faithfulness, we, the church, he's saying the American church, have become not only unfaithful, but irrelevant. Then he says, by our determined efforts to redefine ourselves in ways that are more compelling to the modern world than are faithful to Jesus Christ. We have lost not only our identity, but our authority and our relevance. Our crying need is to be faithful as well as relevant. He's not saying that relevance is intrinsically wrong, but it's a very seductive idol that has overtaken the American church broadly in Christian organizations. I think it's an important word. I think Paul is saying that here. That spiritual wisdom confronts the wisdom of the day in which we live. It is a wisdom of the cross. It's a wisdom of the Holy Spirit that we are wise to embrace, Paul says. And notice we are called to impart that to others through our life and our words. Now again, without dismissing the goodness of relevance, we must be aware of the seduction of it. So this question in Paul's thinking raises the question, so how do we get this wisdom we need? And that's the second truth. This is where Paul goes. Spiritual wisdom is revealed, not attained. It's revealed, not attained. Notice verses 10 through 13. Paul contrasts again. Remember contrast? He embeds his truth in the manger of contrast. The contrast here is the present cultural understanding. That's the wisdom of this world. It doesn't mean it's pernicious or necessarily evil. It's the common crowd thinking of the day. The age, that which animates the moment. Contrasting that with the wisdom of God revealed through the Spirit. You'll notice verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit in context. For the Holy Spirit searches. Notice what Paul says. This is astonishing. I don't want anyone to miss this. The Holy Spirit searches everything. That's everything. The Holy Spirit searches even the remotest depths of God himself. That's astonishing truth claim. See, spiritual wisdom, Paul is saying, is not attained by our intellectual merit or studious inquiry. Anyone knows, Paul knows that he's deeply engaged in the life of the mind. But the life of the mind reaches its limitation. That's what he's saying. This is something that has to be revealed to us, given to us as an act of grace from God himself. So what Paul is saying, listen carefully, his text is dense, but it's very important for us to understand the rest of this book and all the aberrations of the spirit-filled life and all the messes we're going to encounter in this book. We've got to get a handle here. What he is saying is that this is revealed to us, this wisdom, Trinitarian wisdom is revealed to us through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the conduit to this wisdom, and it's available within the omniscience of the Trinitarian community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, to do this, it's so mind-boggling, he gives us a literary analogy. You'll notice what's next in verse 11. He paints the picture of God and man and humankind and says, it's kind of like humans. As a human, we have an inner voice, right? We think, we listen, we talk to ourselves. 
that is a part of who we are. And he's saying that there's an analogy of how the Holy Spirit operates within the Trinitarian context. The inner thought and space and voice, so to speak, of God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. He says, in a similar way, that the Holy Spirit knows every thought of the Godhead, and that is the Trinitarian mystery he's talking about, the Holy Spirit is God himself. And Paul makes this observation that as humans... No other humans can know exactly what we're thinking unless we say something or give some nonverbal cue, right? Can you imagine what it'd be like if you got on a plane this week, you're packed into that plane, they're all packed these days, or you know, you're sitting in some meeting and everybody around you knew every thought you'd ever thought and every thought you're thinking at that moment. <laughs> Would that be scary? You know, you wouldn't like your colleagues at work. You wouldn't like your fellow students. I assure you, your teacher, you wouldn't like your Pastor Tom because there's things that he's thought and things you don't want to hear. See, this is an idea from a human experience to the divine reality. And what Paul is saying is that the Holy Spirit in Trinitarian wonder has absolute transparency of a good and perfect God. Gospel faith. And the person and work of Christ revealed through the Holy Spirit gives us access to Trinitarian transparency and wisdom at the very depths of God. Wow. That's stunning. And Paul will say at the beginning of his book in chapter 1, you heard it last week, Christ is both the power of God and what? And the wisdom of God. Paul's teaching on the Holy Spirit so beautifully and harmoniously echoes Jesus' teaching. You remember in the upper room discourse the night before his crucifixion, he gathers his scared, spitless disciples around him, says, I'm leaving. And they're freaking out. And what does Jesus say to them? I'm giving you a helper. A helper's coming who will be with you. Notice John chapter 14, 16 through 17. Jesus says to his disciples, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. That's how he describes the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. This was stunning revelation. The disciples, the apprentices of Jesus, will have 24-7 nanosecond access to the Trinitarian power and wisdom of God through the spirit. That's what he's saying. That's bold truth claim. That's amazing. The Holy Spirit will always be, where, be there with them, with you if you're a follower of Jesus. The Holy Spirit will actually take up residence in all that mystery in our human body once we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Wow. And the Holy Spirit's revelation role is not just a one-time illumination. It is a moment-by-moment -moment intimacy with God that unleashes the divine power of the Godhead and the wisdom of God in your moment every day as you look to his leading. Holy Spirit brings the reality of God into our lives in such a compelling way as we live and breathe in a God-bathed world. That's what Paul is saying. The hymn writer who wrote In the Garden captures this beautifully. Let me give you some of the words that capture what Paul is saying and the role of the Holy Spirit in Jesus walking with you every moment. These words are beautiful. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And notice, and the voice I hear, 
falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I'm his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Why is it such precious intimacy? Because through the Spirit of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, we have access to the power and wisdom and intimacy of the triune God as his image bearers. This is not an academic exercise. This is a transforming, existential moment of reality, of life, of intimacy, of relationship with God. Our Holy Spirit, our helper, is with you to guide you, to reveal truth to you, to give you strength, to give you comfort this week. You may be feeling alone. You may be feeling anxious about what you're going to do this week about a relationship that's ripping you apart, about a business decision you've got to make, you don't know what you're going to do, or a relationship that just seems to be going to you know where in a handbag. Paul reminds the apprentice of Jesus that we are never alone. You are never alone if you know Christ. Never. And you are never without the necessary guidance and comfort and emotional and physical resources to do what God has called you to do today and tomorrow. Never. Paul emphasizes the Holy Spirit's guidance primarily, again, through the words of Scripture. You'll notice impartation, spoken language in verses 6 to 14. I've already highlighted that. The words of Holy Scripture communicated in words by the Holy Spirit, by gifted Holy Spirit-anointed teachers is the primary way spiritual wisdom is revealed to us. That's what Paul is saying. It's not the only way, but it's the primary way. You know, as much as I love this canonical book, 66 books of the Holy Bible, as much as I cherish this book, there is someone who cherishes it vastly more than me, the author of the book. I've had the joy of authoring a couple books and, you know, nothing like this, I assure you. But I tell you, I have a different relation with my book than another book. The Holy Spirit loves, cherishes, and authored this book. And his wisdom and power pour through it in passion. If we're going to wise up, we need to look up. It's not accidental we call this book God's word. God cherishes it. The Spirit loves it. He anoints it. He illuminates it and brings transformation to our life. Paul says we need spiritual wisdom. It's eternal, not temporal. It's timeless. And he will say now, as he builds to the end of this book, it is revealed, never attained. And he says it's distinct, not arrogant. Let me highlight this briefly. Verses 14 through 16 often are communicated in us-versus-them arrogance. But that's not all that Paul is saying. Let me read it. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him or foolishness. He is not able to understand them because they are simply spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but his himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Do you see what he says? But we have the mind or spirit. Better translation is mind. We have the mind of Christ. Wow. But notice how Paul contrasts these two people, spiritual and natural. And you may be here this morning, and you've been abused by people who said, I'm spiritual and you're nothing, or I'm a Christian, you're nothing. And that's not the point of arrogance at all. It's distinction, not elevation in category. In other words, there's nothing prideful to come from this. Because nothing we have 
we did not receive out of sure grace. It doesn't mean that the natural or the spiritual person is smarter than the natural person, okay? So however you align yourself, you might not think you're a follower of Jesus yet. You might know you are a follower of Jesus. But for a follower of Jesus, the only way we can be spiritual is if God does it in our life. Only if we've embraced Christ as our Lord and Savior and His powerful atoning work on the cross and His glorious resurrection, we have been given a gift of unmerited grace. The natural person simply doesn't yet have that capacity. We must understand, Paul is so clear about this, for in any of us, in order to know God, God must first reveal himself to us. We are hopelessly lost and blind. We cannot know God apart from God. So we have no reason, if God has revealed himself, to have any smugness or arrogance, but humble gratitude. The other day I was looking for a college basketball game. And uh, I do watch college basketball now and then. I really like it. I know I can't play basketball at all. It's strange. But uh, there was a game, a particular game I wanted to watch. And uh, I looked at my TV guide. Now, I have a pretty limited package because uh, I'm cheap. And I realized to my bummer that this Game I wanted to watch wasn't on, it wasn't a part of my cable package. So I Googled it, you know, Google's the answer to everything. I Googled it real quick, it's on the station. I look at my cable package, it doesn't have it. Now I could have stood in front of my TV, you know, cursing and trying to flip channels and throwing things at my TV because I want to see this, I want this. But it done no good because I don't have the package to see it. It's floating out there all around. Some other people see it. <laughs> but I can't see it. This is what Paul is saying. This is exactly, and not, not ESPN probably at that point. Paul is saying the natural person doesn't have the package to see it. Only God can give him that through sheer grace and love. It's not about being smarter. There are lots of smart people in the world. But Paul says there are two categories, natural and spiritual. Maybe you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus yet. What Paul is saying here, what I've been saying, you're thinking, huh, right? Are you kidding me? I don't get it. Is this really true or is this hocus pocus? That's how you should be thinking if you're not a Christian. With all due respect, but let me just ask you, are you open-minded? Are you open-minded to look at some of the ideas and things shaping your life as perhaps not that smart after all or wise? Are you open to the Spirit of God revealing Himself to you? Are you open to simply praying, God, I don't know if you're real. Jesus, I don't know if you're the Holy Spirit if you're real, but would you reveal yourself to me? Are you open to pray that? Are you open to God intersecting your life? So often we think, you know, I've got to have all this figured out. I've got to know all about the Christian faith. I've got all my doubts answered, all my questions answered. But that's intellectually false, and it's spiritually foolish. Because you're never going to have enough knowledge and understanding to trust Jesus. Never. Never. St. Augustine in the 4th century was brilliant, and he said it this way. Because he understood that the Christian faith 
is deeply engaged in the life and the mind, but its foundation is in the will of faith, not mind. And he said this, understanding is a reward of faith. Therefore, seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. Maybe this morning, your simple application of this message is, Lord, I, you know, I hear all this stuff's going out there. Ooh, out there. I don't see it. I don't get it. Would you show me? Would you show me? Maybe that's why you're here this morning. Because the life you long to live is found in that reality. Spiritual wisdom found in Christ, revealed through the Holy Spirit, is for all of us who know Jesus. So let me ask some questions. As an apprentice of Jesus, are you gaining a greater understanding of living and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit? Are we doing that as a congregation? not just as individuals? Are you daily seeking the Holy Spirit's wisdom and guidance and empowerment, or are you living like a practical atheist or deist, disconnecting Sunday faith with your Monday life? Let me just be real transparent. Your best smarts, I know many of you are very smart. Your best ideas, I know many of you have great ideas, will not be enough for the task at hand of your life. You and I were not created to do life alone. Some of us have this crazy idea that when we leave church on Sunday morning, we leave the Holy Spirit until next Sunday. Students, are you looking to the Holy Spirit to be a good student, to grasp your studies, to have a good relationship with your friends at school, the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace? Are you looking to the Spirit to be a student? Adults, are you trying to live and work in your own power? Dads, moms, grandmas, grandpas, are you trying to raise your children and grandchildren by your own puny wisdom and power or on the power and wisdom available to you through the Holy Spirit? Do you see verse 16, how he ends it? The mind of Christ through the power of the Spirit is available to all who follow Jesus. The very mind of Christ. So Jesus is just smarter than you and me. He's the smartest person in your field, your place of work, are you looking to Jesus, to the Holy Spirit, to give you wisdom, friends, in managing your company, facing a challenging personnel decision, a product development issue? See, when we walk in the Spirit, we work in the Spirit. It profoundly transforms Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, not just Sunday. So let me just suggest briefly three reminders as we walk through this book that spends so much time talking about life in the Spirit. Three quick reminders. First, the primary way the Spirit reveals truth and wisdom to us is through the Holy Scriptures. If you want the Holy Spirit's guidance, soak your heart, your mind, your life in this book. The Holy Spirit leads in many ways, but this is the primary way. You gain His heart, His wisdom, His intimacy, access to the Trinitarian God is through this book. In it, one thing you'll notice the Spirit never contradicts what the Scriptures clearly teach. And the Spirit's voice always has a distinctive scriptural sound and tone to it. Secondly, discerning the Spirit's wisdom increases with spiritual maturity. A large part of growing spiritual maturity is evidenced in a deepening life of intimate prayer with God. James 1.5 asks this question. I pray this one. I read this verse a lot. As if any of you lacks wisdom. Anybody here lack wisdom? Man, I need this. 
as a father, as a husband, as a leader. I mean, just, I need this so badly. If anyone lacks wisdom, what it says, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Persistent, faithful prayer brings wise spiritual discernment moment by moment in helping you fulfill your calling and your life destiny. Someone has defined prayer this way. It's brilliant. Prayer is an interactive conversation with God about what we and God are thinking and doing together in the moment. Yeah. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I'm his own. This is what Paul is inviting the Corinthians to experience. Third, the spirit guidance is both individual and congregational. Let me just say that the Holy Spirit works in our life, yes, but he works as a congregation. Guidance is not just a solidary endeavor, it's a collective one. God designed a local church to be the primary way of changing the world and changing your life. And the Spirit works not only individually, but the Holy Spirit works in a congregation in profound ways through a local church. So what are we thinking these days, friends? Our ideas matter. Even our best ideas can be wrong, can't they? Our human wisdom can be so blind And seeing the movie Selma reminded me again that the driving empowerment of the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King Jr.'s passion was energized with a spiritual wisdom. At Selma, as this movie, I won't tell you all the details as this movie ends, there's a moment where Dr. Martin Luther King, the actor, looks up to the sky. He looks up and he says, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. His truth is marching on. Human wisdom can be so blind, so puny, but God's wisdom is so very wise. So will you with me, someone desperately needing wisdom for today, tomorrow, will you join me? Let's wise up. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how we need you. Holy Spirit, how we need you. Heavenly Father, how we need you. Spirit of the living God, take the words of Scripture and speak into every corner and crevasse of our own individual lives, wherever we are. And may you grant us true spiritual wisdom and power for your glory. Amen.